Welcome back to Mosaic, the podcast from Education Development Center. Mosaic is a place to explore pressing challenges in education, health, and economic opportunity around the world. I'm Bert Gronofsky, senior writer at EDC. This past June, the Minneapolis School Board made headlines when it voted to terminate its contract with the city's police department. It was a significant moment in the Police Free Schools movement, which is pushing school districts around the country to rethink the role of police and school resource officers on school campuses. However, the question of how to do school discipline in a police-free environment is largely unanswered and may pose significant short- and long-term challenges for districts. My guest today is EDC's Meg Cavan, an education researcher who examines issues of social inequality. In this conversation, Meg discusses the roots of the police-free schools movement and offers some advice to districts and school boards who may be rethinking their approach to school discipline. Meg, thanks for being on the podcast today. Happy to be here, Bert. Thanks for having me. So this past spring and summer, we've seen just a tremendous number of rallies and protests for racial justice and equity in the United States. And it's largely been a response to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And I think while the movement is really encompassing a lot of issues, I mean, including education reform, police reform, reparations and voting rights, one issue that keeps coming up is the idea of police-free schools. You've studied school discipline reform here in Massachusetts, and I'm wondering if you can describe what the Police Free Schools movement is all about, and also how it fits into the larger context of the protests that we've been seeing across the country. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Police Free Schools movement, it's important to sort of contextualize it, right? It is both like years in the making, years long, born out of a lot of work done by youth organizations and community groups, but it's really been brought to the fore by this like nationwide reckoning around police brutality. And the question at the center of it is like, why are schools, which are supposed to be these institutions of learning and nurturing and really raising young people, also populated by cops? What are they doing there? And a lot of work has been done recently to sort of bring attention to the idea of a school-to-prison pipeline, which is the argument or the idea that young people and young people of color in particularly and Black boys really specifically are overexposed to systems and structures within school that heighten their likelihood of coming into the criminal justice system. And this notion that schools play a role in the nationwide mass incarceration of people of color. So to put not to find a point on it, police and schools represent like a very direct link between the education system and the criminal justice system. The data are a little bit old, but, you know, in 2013-14 in Massachusetts, nearly a thousand kids were arrested in schools. And this is not, you know, it's not a Massachusetts problem. It's a nationwide problem. The ACLU did a report in 2019 citing things like there are six million students in the United States that have police but no school psychologist and 10 million students in schools with police but no social worker, right? So you're looking at this nationwide investment in a carceral system and a total disinvestment in the social support that students really need. So while you share the desire to reform how schools think about building safe spaces, and we'll get into some of the research and some of the work that you've done later on. I mean, you also have some concerns about how the current moment may actually play out in terms of school safety, school discipline, and policies. So talk about some of those concerns or, or some of those observations that you have right now. So since the beginning of June, right, when this sort of nationwide racial justice uprising kicked off, 14 districts across the country have elected to sever ties with the police departments that had previously been in their schools 
And and the way that those decisions were made, right, they are tremendous victories won by the police free schools movement, right? These youth and community organizations that have been applying relentless pressure to school boards. And in most of the districts where decisions have been made to terminate police contracts, they have been made by school board vote. And this th- that vote, it's an amazing moment. It's a landmark decision. And yet it puts school superintendents, and really school administrators and teachers into a really challenging situation of having an edict passed down from above by folks who are actually pretty far removed from the day-to-day practices of the school. So at the school level, schools are now having to contend with, okay, I can no longer staff the police in my building. What am I going to do instead? And I think there's a real a real dearth of models out there, right? There are There are programs that are, you know, anti-violence and safety promotion programs that have a, a good evidence base behind them. But there's very little out there about how you make the transition from a school organized around a, a sort of law enforcement infrastructure to a school that is taking a different approach. And I think in in that vacuum of models, almost anything could happen, right? And you're seeing very recently, there was a report published out of Minneapolis that Minneapolis is looking to staff school safety specialists, I think is what they're calling them. And and more than half of the folks who they're considering in their finalist roles have law enforcement or corrections department backgrounds. And and so what you see there is the possibility that, that on paper, these districts are terminating police presence in schools and just reanimating it under a different name. So it sounds like while this would be considered a victory for the police free schools movement, it might end up being a hollow victory because the district may end up just replacing police with school resource officers under a different name. Right. So I think I think that's one very real risk. I think the other real risk is, you know, in the space of not knowing necessarily what to do next, a lot can go wrong. A lot can be sort of slippery and messy. And I think there's a possibility that in that slippery, messy space, something happens, right? Like a kid brings a weapon to school, a fight breaks out, and there's the opportunity for a backlash against the police free schools movement to really erupt in the like, this would never have happened if you had had the cops here. And of course, like, we don't know that. But I think the sort of public conversation around what could happen in in the next moment, there's a lot of unknowns here. Right. So, as you were writing your dissertation on school discipline reform, you you visited some high schools in Massachusetts. So what did you learn about the challenges of reforming policing and disciplinary procedures in actual schools that were actually trying to do this? Yeah, so I like my thinking about the sort of possible futures of police free schooling are really informed by this research I did on a law called Chapter 222 in Massachusetts, which restricted the ways that schools could use suspension and expulsion, especially for low-level offenses, and also put in place a requirement that schools try alternatives to exclusion first. And to try to answer that question of how schools are implementing this policy change, I spent six months inside two different high schools, like every day following their disciplinarians around, like really trying to account for what it is that they're doing instead of suspending kids. And what I found was, Instead of suspending kids, they were suspending kids without writing those suspensions down. So it made it look like the suspension levels were dropping across the board when, in fact, the practice was the same, but the recording of the practice had essentially dried up. 
so that that was one piece. And and it's not to say that that schools didn't want to or didn't try to do the right thing. Like I fundamentally believe that schools are out there with the intent of doing right by their students. And so one of the schools I spent time in was trying to implement a sort of more restorative justice approach to discipline, which really hinges upon building a community culture throughout the school first, right? Like you can't be accountable to the community if there's no community. And so there, that, that in restorative justice is accomplished by doing community building circles that gives everybody a voice, their structured conversations. And, you know, the, the committee that was working to implement this was doing everything they could, I think, to really cultivate this restorative justice framework. They were writing the circle protocols, handing them out to teachers, telling them to implement them in advisory group. And the teachers just weren't, you know, or in the moments that sort of harm reparation circles were used to sort of repair after a student had had violated one of the school's rules or the school's norms, things went wrong in that space too. You know, like I watched a teacher get up, like get offended by something a student said to her and get up and walk out of the circle, right? Which demonstrates a lack of buy-in to the model, an unwillingness to sort of share power or be wrong in front of students, right? Like schools are really fundamentally organized around hierarchy and social control. And this is a moment where we are contemplating a total transformation of that ethos. And I think it's going to take a lot to really be ready for that. So it sounds like those those stories are really sort of a cautionary tale. I mean, here it is, Massachusetts is trying to reform school discipline, but then as you saw in schools, it really does take a lot to get to the point where you're undoing, you know, years and years, maybe even generations of how you've done things to do things in, in a different way. So what would you say to a school committee or superintendent that was really thinking about severing ties between schools and police officers? How can they do this? How can they begin thinking about this work? So I think there's a couple of things that schools and districts and you know, the various governing bodies that are involved need to think about, right? So one one of those is resource reallocation, right? Like one of the major sticking points of the, the police free schools movement is let's just think about the amount of money that is spent in in the school system on police when, you know, I read those statistics earlier. So many students lack access to the social supports that would address many of the underlying conditions that lead them ultimately to be in contact with the criminal justice system. So there's there's that resource reallocation piece. I think, as I said earlier, there's a models piece, right? Like we don't have examples to follow. We don't have a roadmap for how to make this transition. And I, so I think with this sort of vanguard of districts taking this step toward police-free schooling, I think we need to be really open-minded about how quickly and smoothly that's going to go, right? To, to be really give a lot of space for iteration and learning there, but also really capture those stories of early implementation so that the next wave of schools, the next wave of districts has some information about what works out there and what does not. You just talked a little bit about resource reallocation, you know, really getting to the brass tacks of, you know, money and staffing. What about from a a policy angle? Are there specific state policies or district policies that are really needed to support either police-free schools or some new ways about thinking about school discipline? Yeah, so I think that's, you know, it's a really interesting question, right? Because the policy change that's being made now is a policy, right? That there are districts taking the policy position that, that police should not be in schools. Absent that bold a move, 
I think there are some things that can kind of mediate the negative consequences that come from from over-reliance on the cops. And, and those can be things like policies prohibiting the intervention of police into non-criminal student behavioral incidents, right? So if there's a student who swears at a teacher, the cops should not get called to handle that. If there's a student who cuts class all the time. That's not a criminal offense. And I think there's a little bit of slipperiness there around like fights and verbal altercations. And, you know, a lot of the really typical youth behavior that we see in schools across the country, regardless who attends them. And then I think the other piece that's really important is data collection. I think, I think it's really critical that state and local policy require the collection of really fine-grained information about interactions between students and police. And that is because those data can tell us a lot about racial disparities in terms of students' exposure to police contact. There's a lot of data out there demonstrating that students of color are twice as likely, at least often four times as likely, to be referred to police and law enforcement within school. And I think it's really important to track that and to have codified ways of following up with those schools that are particularly over-reliant on the cops. So I'd like to return to something you were you briefly mentioned earlier, which is that this this whole transition can be really messy, right? And it seems like one of the one of the central tensions right now is the issue of of time. So there's incredible urgency to reform these systems now. You know, the movements are happening now. The protests are happening right now. Students are talking now. But as you've been saying, you know, changing systems takes planning. It takes time. It takes intention. It takes community building. How do we help schools who want to reform their disciplinary practices get beyond the short-term struggles to really make a long-term difference? I think there's a couple of things, right? So as I said earlier, I think schools lack models for how to implement this change and how to allow that change to like really take root and really be transformative in their buildings. So I think they need models, but then the follow-on question is where do those models come from? And I think where those models need to come from is from this first wave of early adopters. So I think a lot of work needs to be done to really capture those stories you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, really, to try to understand, like, what are the processes that schools are implementing to move away from policing? Who are the people they're putting in place? What are the strategies they're using? What are the programs they're adopting? To try to really transform their cultures away from punishment. I think it's really critical that whatever comes next in terms of the implementation of police-free schools does not let go of the fact that this is a youth movement and it's a community movement. So as we are learning from schools, I think it's critical that communities and young people are at the center of that. And that means that they are at the table designing the questions we're asking of schools. It means that they are at the table interpreting the results of whatever studies get done. And I'm talking about sophisticated statistical analyses using the Office of Civil Rights data, which collects information of school-based arrests, right? Does adding more counselors change the likelihood that a student at school Y is going to be arrested at school? And I think schools need guidance on how to do that. And so one of the things we've been thinking a lot about here is is who are the partners we need to have at the table? Because it's obviously a really complicated undertaking with a lot of moving pieces but that I think could be 
a really powerful resource for schools to draw on and a really productive learning community for schools and communities to be a part of. So, you know, we, we are in the moment of really trying to codify what this idea is, and we're very much open to feedback and collaborative thinking and co-construction of this idea with other folks, activists, journalists, educators who are in this space already. And if you, if you were able to create this, this sort of structure to help schools, what do you think the end result of it could be? You know, impact is really difficult to measure in the sense that I think we're often asked to measure it in terms of statistical significance, right? And in, a, in an ideal world, this initiative could drive forward the transformation of school cultures, in particular p- pertaining to discipline and policing and the social control of young people, and in particular, young people of color. Well, it's certainly an important topic, and I think as we restart school here, there's going to be a lot more urgency to sort of figure out how we can do schooling in a different way that we've been doing school for a long time. Meg, I really wanted to thank you for coming on today. Good luck with your work. Thanks, Bert. I'm really happy to have been here. Thanks for listening to Mosaic. For more information about EDC's work on social justice, equity, and education reform, visit us online at edc.org.